Hello, listeners. Welcome to Educational Landscapes, Lessons from Leaders. On today's episode, we are going to learn from Richard Pittman. Welcome to the show, Richard. Hi, thanks for having me. Most welcome. So to get us going, what is your educational leadership title or titles? Yes, I, my title is Sub-Internship Director uh, for Internal Medicine. I have small roles as Stanford Clinical Training Program facilitator at our site, but that's a, yeah. Oh, can you tell us a bit more about that facilitator role? Well, so in 2018, uh, following some great advice from my boss, he said, whenever you transition roles, I previously ran the clerkship, the third year rotation. He said, whenever you transition from one role to the next, it's really good as a part of whatever you might get or package is to get something to equip you to do the next role. And so as I moved from one role to the next, I had a chance to go uh, and participate in the Stanford Clinical Training for clinical teachers, sorry, faculty development course for clinical teachers. Um, it was a month in Palo Alto and was actually pretty hard work, but what I didn't realize is that it was actually a train the trainer program. And so I was coming back to be able to start training um, faculty and residents here, which I've gotten some protected time to do uh, while being here, yeah. That is awesome, that is awesome. So what else do you do in your other role as the sub-intern? Right. So, and and I'll say it sometimes saying what I don't do. So as the third year clerkship director, every medical student during their third year would rotate for eight weeks on internal medicine. And I was in charge of their experience while on medicine. Well, so the fourth year rotation for internal medicine, uh, students get a choice. So they can either do medicine, surgery, or pediatrics. We end up getting about 60% of kids, fourth year students, um, on the rotation, which is a four-week rotation, uh, and I'm in charge of administering it, curricular development, and uh, implementation, grading, etc. Wonderful. So I, I can hear bits and pieces in here, um, you know, clerkship director, um, the sub-I director, the facilitator, and I'm curious, what skills do you use in these types of roles? Yeah. Um, Probably the most important ones usually are interpersonal communication and listening, uh, empathizing with learners. Uh, that that would be probably the main skill. Uh, ongoing cultivation of my own knowledge, um, just to stay abreast of what's going on, which I probably don't do as good a job as I'd like to. One of the joys of working with with the students is that uh, that they kind of keep they keep asking questions, so you have to keep learning. So I'd say that's sort of ongoing learning from that, um, and then probably some mentorship. Uh, you know, where students come and say, "Hey, you know, well, I'm on this rotation, but think." And one of the fun things about the fourth year rotation is is that during the year they are kind of declaring where they're headed, and so like a, for great many students I you know sit down with them and listen to their thoughts and help them sort of clarify where their career vision and stuff so mentorship yeah that is awesome that is awesome thank you for sharing and so I would love to hear more you've told us little bits and pieces but what was your journey that led to these current roles that you have sure 
probably like many people when they start in academics, you fall into a clinical role. And, and so I showed up at Grady and had to do 80% clinical work, which was divided between working in the inpatient clinic or sorry, in the outpatient clinics and then on the inpatient medical service we call the wards. And I was doing that for about two years and and feel and trying to do a good job and but feeling like I don't really know where my place is. And I was kind of nervous. And so I'd kind of, you know, what we tell early faculty folks to do is, hey, just get involved, say yes, you know, do a good job, show up. And and I was trying to do those things. Um and so I kind of was in two veins, was was teaching when I had the opportunity. And the second was was some technology stuff, which I can tell you about if interesting. But um one day I, I came out of clinic and I was with Dr. Erica Brownfield and she asked me to come by her office for a minute. And she was the current clerkship director of the rotation. She said, well, I'm going to be heading to the dean's office pretty soon and I need someone to take over the clerkship. Um, and I said, oh, great. Well, I know so-and-so is good and so-and-so is good and so-and-so is good. And she goes, no, wait, what about you? And I was like, oh, wait, I just got here. And so I really was very surprised that that I that I was being considered for that to run the third year rotation but I ultimately ended up doing that and 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 had a great pleasure doing that for seven years. And I worked with uh, Dr. Karen Law, who's um, gone on to do great things at, at Emory. And then in 2018, I transitioned from running the third year rotation, taking over for Dr. Michael Lubin, the uh, fourth year rotation. And a joy at that. I mean, you didn't ask me this, but one of the fun things about it is while I enjoy working with all the students and I really delighted in that I knew every medical student, I really love that it's a smaller group of learners at one time. I find once you go over 12 to 15 in a classroom, it's sort of hard to really not be doing a lot of crowd control, even though they're mature learners and not seventh graders. But <laughs> Understood, understood. And yes, you mentioned technology. Can you tell us a bit more about your technology stuff? I've always been a tech nerd. I'm, I, you know, there's always an obligatory moment at any family gathering where someone's asking me to fix their device or help them, you know. Um, but what that looked like in the hospital was we, Grady, when I came in 2009, was really on the verge of getting an electronic medical record, and nobody in our department was really um, that into working on that. And so I stepped in and kind of became an epic, this is a funny title, epic physician champion for epic. And, and it was that it, it ended up being like the champion, like in the arena, uh, fighting the lions because implementing a new electronic medical record was a lot of turmoil for the physicians. It really changed their workflows and everything like that. And so I was in between the physicians and the tech people. And so it was, it was, it was interesting, but it was a lot of, uh, a lot of headaches. So I did that for a while, but, the, but anyway, I got those two roles at the same time. And so I, I had, I walked into a lot of protected time to be doing those things kind of out of the blue two years into my career. Oh, so um, I'm guessing, uh, as you said, with technology, um, is it mainly technology within the medical clinical or are you also uh, do you dabble in technology as it's used in education? Well, that's a funny thing. Yes, I, I, I'm always looking for a place to use technology. I, I've probably chilled out a little bit as I've matured and things are, are not as intuitive um, to use. But, but sure, yeah, so definitely the electronic medical record. But I, I kind of started teaching about how to use technology in healthcare and, and sort of really talks on apps and how to use um, clinical tools at the bedside with, with iPads and, and phones. Uh, and then I guess I would say I probably pivoted into uh, technology in specifically education about 
thinking about tools to flip classrooms, about video recording, uh, making making videos, for instance, in a Khan Academy style, uh, things like that. So yeah, um, I'm I'm always looking for ways to use good technology. Yeah. Awesome, awesome. It's always nice to hear people who are into their ed tech side too. Yeah. So um, as you think about the journey that you've had so far, what do you wish you knew before stepping into various leadership roles? I, I think I would answer that in two ways. One would be how to be a good leader. Uh, and, and then the truth is, is that so many clinicians that become educators, uh, many of us don't have uh, any sort of formal training uh, as an educator, and and they we we kind of show up as a willing teacher and have some enthusiasm, and then are told, okay, well here you go, I guess you can do it, um, and and I think so. So the the education side, I think I wish I would have really had more dedicated time to learn to be an educator, um, whether it be the Stanford course that I took, you know, pretty far, you know, seven nine years into to it, or or courses like that. I, I know some people get a a master's degree in health education, something like that. I, I think I would have thought, had I known I was going on this journey, uh, I would have. I wish I had that early. And then, I, I, obviously, leadership. Um, some of it is just maturing, becoming a better leader. Um, but I feel like I, I have sort of self-educated on leadership stuff. Big fan of reading Brene Brown and other leadership type things. And, and I feel like I, I've, I've grown a lot as I learned those two things. Wonderful. Thank you. So uh, building on the continued learning, uh, what continuing professional development do you do in order to keep up with the needs of your various roles? Well, it turns out, I mean, the, the, the Stanford training that I did has really been the gift that keeps on giving. Like if you've ever been to a conference, you know, you hear the material one time and you're lucky if you take away um, many of the principles or whatever, but, but because I teach it on an ongoing basis, I'm always re-experiencing that material. And so um, that is, I mean, I, honestly, if I'm honest, that is probably the most important thing that continues to help me uh, keep fresh is that I keep learning these sort of fundamentals of, you know, how do I promote understanding and retention and then going through those kind of basics and applying those. Uh, I think secondly would be just, I feel like one of the I mean, to me, the most important thing about being a teacher is to really be an enthusiastic learner. And so I feel like I'm always learning with people. Um, and while I may know more of the content than they do, I think watching them experience it and how they make it their own is something that I've, I've really take a lot of joy in. And so I, I feel like that, for instance, in the sub, I, there are 10 topics that the students teach on. They teach each other every time. And so I would have heard, you know, the chess pain talk a hundred times but, but hearing each learner's way, their take on that and 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 it just I feel like I experience it newly in those times. And then I obviously my own reading and um, such. I I enjoy going to professional meetings, probably most specifically the clerkship directors of internal medicine. Um, I, I would say the pandemic has thrown me off my game a little bit about getting to all those meetings, but that that's another place where I really enjoy doing you know. Oh, can you tell us a bit um, any other recommendations? for meetings for folks to consider? Well, I think, you know, if finding, like for instance, I'm an internist, and so finding what's present inside of your own um, practice, like for instance, Society of Hospital Medicine does great meetings. Um, I haven't been to one of, to the bigger meetings, like the, um, the, the Academy, the ACP meeting and things like that, but I hear those are really great ones. 
Uh, but I think, you know, probably saying, hey, where in my domain, if I'm a surgeon, you know, like like finding those educational groups and, and honestly finding, is there a group that organizes around the role that I'm in, for instance, I got so lucky, clerkship directors of internal medicine, that's very nicely focused. And, and I was surprised how big it was. And so it allows you to participate uh, in a meeting and present, you know, we present and share work there. And that's really been a delight. So I'd probably say rather than one size fits all is really that that would be that process of trying to find um, things like that. So yeah. Thank you. And what additional advice would you give someone interested in doing the same type of educational leadership roles that you've had? Yeah, I guess I would say two things. One would be uh, when you start doing it, you're you're definitely going to feel like you don't know enough or you're not ready to start teaching. Uh, and, and I think that if you're waiting to when you do to start that's you're probably not going to be a good educator if you think I don't educate until I know it all. But but really seeing yourself as a co-journeyer or a co-traveler um, and I know enough or I know a little bit more than them and I give it a go and then I'm and I'm willing to learn from my own mistakes as a as a teacher. I feel like that's been a really important thing that I'd want people to know. Uh, and so therefore to show up and, and just to ask, you know, even if uh, I'd say a hard thing about academic you know, actual teaching is, is that protected time for doing it. So they're, they're like roles like I have, they, they're not that many. And so I think it, that it's difficult, but it's what everyone has to do is for a period of time, you volunteer and you do stuff for your CV so that when that role is available, that you have a chance to step into it. Um, yeah, I'd say those are, would be, I think I had one more piece, but I I've slipped out of my other, my ear. Yeah. I know. I was going to say, I thought you had two pieces of advice. It well, I'm going to call those two, but there was a second one I couldn't come up with. Sorry. <laughs> okay. Well, if it comes back, um, yeah, feel free I'll, to I'll add to it. You know. um, so talking a bit more, because you talked about how um, the Stanford course was really one that kind of really helped in terms of preparing you for the next role. I'd love to hear a bit more about your views around succession planning. Sure. Well, I mean, I, I, someone wisely said, and I'm sorry, I don't know the attribution is that you can't go into your next job until you find someone to take your place. And and I think, and not that I want to leave my current job, but but I, my kind of attitude has always been, I'm always looking for people that are interested because, you know, the same thing is like when you don't have the protected role like I do, well, you'd like to, maybe, I mean, I'm sure there's 10 people that might want to take my job. And so I, my policy has always been, hey, if you come to me and say, hey, I want to participate, I try to show you a way that you can. And then if you kind of show up and do a good job, then you become the front runner. And for instance, I, I won't name his name, but there's a person right now who did the very thing and said, hey, I'm kind of interested in education. And I said, well, hey, look, here's what we have going on here on the sub by. And he just started coming to meetings. And, and you know, and I, I said, well, right now, nobody else, you know, someday when they fire me or I uh, move on to something else, you know, this could be yours. And and so I, I think it's really important to always have a view of that. And, um, and, and I, and I, my mindset about succession planning is, and, and again, I got this advice from Dr. Del Rio, who's a, a leading figure at Emory. It's like, you know, that most jobs have a cycle time of somewhere between seven and 10 years. And that at the end of that period, it's probably a good idea for another person to be able to, um, to take it forward. And, and, and so I, I really do kind of believe that while I pour my whole self into whatever role I'm doing, that, that often 
Um, it may, it might be like writing a paper, right? If you revised it a whole bunch that you get to a point where you can't anymore and you yep. need someone else to look at it. And I think that that'd be the way I think about a, a program. And so I, I, I very proactively, I'm always thinking about that, even though I'm really happy in the role that I, I have. Thank you. I think that's, that's a very insightful perspective because sometimes you hear when people talk about succession planning it's this fear of oh but somebody will take over my yeah. position yeah. um but it's like yes their fresh eyes are a very useful thing mm. yeah all right so uh continuing on um what would you say has contributed to your biggest successes thus far well, and, and I think honestly, this sort of follows what you were just what I was just talking about is that, you know, finding the the next people to take it over. And so, you know, the the, the medicine clerkship for third years, um, I took over in great condition from Dr. Brownfield. I better say that. Right. You know, um, she's now one of the deans. And I, no, I really got it in great condition and I made it my own. But but one of the best things I think I did is I found the associate director to work with me who then took it over and Meredith Laura and her success. And they really took it to the next level. And, and, and the example would be they, whereas I think I did a really good job of teaching students about being really systematic in the components of how they present a patient. Um, and, and so like really gave them a framework, I think of like, hey, this is actually how you kind of formulate um, especially like some of the more nebulous parts of like, give the history of the patient. Well, how do you actually do that? And so I think I was really structured and, and gave them guidance on how to do that. But I think what Meredith and Varun have done is they've taken it to the next level where it's not just the structure of it, but it's also the way you're thinking about it and the content and what they would call the clinical reasoning of it. And I just feel so happy whenever I hear about something they're doing, like, wow, I'm so glad that they're the ones running that. So anyway, my success is finding the right people um, and I think for me, a way that to think about what is success is, was, is really interesting. I, I, uh, there's a guy named Jeff Weiss um, from Tulane who um, kind of did everything at their program for a while, was the program director, was one of the deans or whatnot. But he, he's kind of a guru in the internal medicine areas of talking about medical education. And he always talked about, and in, in he's written this in a book, about the four levels of being a teacher. And and I, I, I'll... I think I can find it real quick if you'll bear with me. Um, yep. But uh, and, and so, and I'll, I'll just give them to you very briefly. But but it, but but there's four kind of phases. And so phase one is, hey, I'm trying to master the topic. And so so much of phase one is like I know my stuff, and I'm here to show that I know my stuff. So it's kind of about me and the stuff I know. Phase two is when people start to recognize that you know your stuff and you're starting to get all this feedback and it can be really tempting in phase two is like, I'm getting really popular. And so like I abandoned the actual teaching because I'm so enjoying the praise. And phase three is where I actually, I'm, I know my stuff, I'm getting such positive feedback that I'm actually getting awards. And, and so I'm really driven by the awards that I get. And, and, and so, and then my favorite one, which is what I, which is what I delight in. And I hope that I see it this way is that phase four is about, um, you're beyond that other stuff, but it's like, is that it's driven by a vision of turning a corner someday in the hospital where you see one of your former students doing the right thing for a patient because of something you taught them. Um, and, and I just find that like for me, you know, when I, I had to do this kind of talk about 
to medical students who are graduating and they're like, you know what, you know, what is your big success? And my big success, I feel like is just that I know that I believe that there's a group of students that like, they'll look back and they're like, oh, Dr. Pittman taught me this. And like those little things like that, I feel like is what my joy comes from anyway, but that, that'd be being a phase four teacher is what that mindset of that's what, I, that's what winning looks like. It's very small and often not seen. So. Oh, I love that. And I, I love, um, as you talk about that, how it really feeds in very much with your views on succession planning. Hmm, interesting. I'm glad you could see that. I didn't see it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, sometimes you just gotta have other eyes, right? <laughs> um, so recognizing, as we said um, earlier, you had talked about how as an educator, we're always constantly learning. So what would you say are your biggest growth opportunities right now? Hmm. Yeah, I think I, I mean, I could say it simply is like, I, I'm not a good researcher um, or really much one of it all. You know, I do, I, I believe in value scholarship. Um, I, I'm kind of a cynic. So sometimes I feel like people are doing scholarship for their, for their CVs and not for the conversation, the scholarly conversation. But one thing that I learned when I went to Stanford is that that group out there they really tried to deploy um, research and scholarship to answer clinical education questions in a way that that people would do, uh, you know, whether it be like a does a drug work or not. And I and I really was impressed by that. But that's that's an area I think that where I I either need to grow the skill set or I just need to find the right partners. But that that's an area. So if you're out there and you hear this and you really have great scholarly skills and you need a partner, come talk to me. Yeah. There you go, Richard's your man. Yeah. <laughs> so as you reflect on um, your, your experiences to date, what do you love most about your work and what you do? Words like most are a little bit daunting to me, but I'll, but I'll just say that something that I really enjoy uh, is that uh, there is this cycle um, where each kind of batch of learners, they're fresh and new, whether it be on the rotation with me or whether I'm with a team in the hospital. And I, and so I get all these opportunities to sort of reinvent myself and to, to do it a little bit differently, to listen to what their experience was. I, I mean, my, the greatest gift to me is when students give me constructive feedback and um, which they do. Uh, and, and, and so to really kind of be able to try it, do just to do it just a little bit differently the next time to make it better for them. Um, so I, I guess I would say, um, yeah, kind of starting basically that idea of identity, group identity formation, where you start as like a, a disparate group of learners. Like, so again, this would just be a, the sub by example. So there's 10 kids that show up on orientation day at 830 and and they they bring in all their previous experiences of working with other people and like, what's it going to be like on medicine? And I do this orientation and I tell them, look, my hope for you is that by the end of this, this will feel like a really safe learning community. And you'll feel really like we can talk about hard things. We're learning from each other and together. Um, and, and I feel like when I say that on the first day, they're like, yeah, sure, sure. I heard that one before. And then on the last day, I'm like, y'all, it's already been four weeks. Here we are in week four. And is that true? And, and I feel like a lot of times we get there. And so that's something that I really take a lot of pleasure in. I love that. I love that. And I feel like it's going to feed into my the answer for my next question for you, which is, what are your current passions around education? Or what would you say your current education philosophy is? Hmm. Well, and I'm going to kind of bite on the, the second part of the, the question about educational philosophy. I had to do this uh, 
visiting professor, though I wasn't a professor, I, you know, I was like, wait, I'm not sure I can do this uh, at, a, at another institution. And I had to give this talk about, and so I had, I kind of had to wrestle with that. And what is my educational philosophy? And, and I, my first take was, I love metaphors, so forgive me, was like, hey, the teacher is the chef, okay? My job is to have this educational rep recipe and deploy it so that I make this meal, educational meal, that's very savory and tasty that the students want to devour. And, and it's like, that works pretty good. Yeah, I give an inter interesting talk and lecture. And so like, that seemed to work. But then it's like, wait a second. But we know that lectures don't really work that well. There's low retention. And so another metaphor from a hobby of mine, which is gardening, uh, kind of took over, which is like, hey, my job as a teacher is to set the right environment to make sure there's the right educational nutrients, conditions, rain, uh, sunlight, water, and that the student's job is to take up and make their own meaning out of it. I guess you'd call that constructivist. Um, and so I've I've really enjoyed thinking about what does that look like with learners in the classroom and how do I, I mean, again, sometimes, because it's so tempting to do what others call the transmission mode, right? It's, I can transmit knowledge from me to them, but, but it's like, we know that doesn't work, but it's so dang tempting to keep trying it. Um, and so, and especially because more active, engaged learning and constructivist learning, uh, it's slower. It's it, you cannot pack in as much, and and uh, anyway. But but I would just say that's been something that's really fun to think about how that works. And um, I, I don't know if you want to hear this now, but I would say um, there's a new educational leader, Joe Ledoux, who's joining uh, the Emory School of Medicine team to help lead the educational transformation. And I just had a meeting with him and uh, just to kind of pick his brain and see what he was up to and. And I just think he's going to be such a great force for nudging all of us from a more passive learning style to way more, uh, even beyond active, into constructivist or even interactive. And and I think I'm I'm really I think that's such a great move that the school has done, and I'm really excited about him being here. So wonderful, wonderful. Thank you for sharing with us your wonderful metaphors for your philosophy. Right, right. So um, as a fellow gardener, I am very curious, are you, um, what type of gardening do you do? Veggie, trees, what 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 are you into? Well, I guess I would say I'm into all of it. Um, I, 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 uh, my, I have a philosophy. If everybody ever says, would you like a plant? I say yes. Uh, I'll find a place for it. Um, I love to propagate cuttings of things, whether I'm, I don't know if that's not always allowed, but I do it. I I, I love to make cuttings and whatnot. And, and I would say something I'm really proud of um, that I, one of the process self reflections I've done is like, Hey, how do I bring myself to work? And, and so part of that is like, Hey, how can I bring my love of gardening and share that work? And so we actually uh, help to restore and, and um, do a planting in a garden uh, right behind our faculty office building. And now it's like a wellness garden space that has plants and stuff. So anyway, that's been a really a fun thing and people are out there enjoying that. So I guess I would say I like to grow everything. I'm probably, if I had to choose one veggies over flowers, I'm a flower person. So I really enjoy seeing uh, either perennial flowers like hydrangeas or, um, or, or seasonal things like the tulips and uh, peonies that come up at different times of the year. That's, that's, um, that's what I am into. Awesome, awesome. Thank you. What do you grow? What do you like to grow? veggies i am very much into veggies um my tomatoes eggplants peppers yeah that's my happy place yeah yeah what i found was that and when i've, I've sort of 
nudged myself to only plant stuff that I actually want to eat. Cause I found that I was growing all this stuff. Like I love watching okra grow, which I grow that. And, but, but no one actually eats it. My wife said she hates it. She grew up eating boiled okra all the time. And so never oh, wants to touch that. Yeah. Slimy. Um, but uh, yeah, so, but I, I mean, I still, I grow, I'm, I'm growing berries is fun. Like blackberries and blueberries and whatnot. So. I'm with you. I, um, when I was lear learning to garden, I was growing all of these herbs, herbs. Yeah. Yeah. Which I don't cook with, but it was to prove to myself that I could grow them. So right? <laughs> I get it. I get it. Yeah. Um, well, so I know I spoke, uh, asked a lot of questions that had to do with, you know, your career job, but I know you are more than what you do. Mm. So what are some other things you do outside of work to help you maintain joy in life and practice? Mm. Yeah, sure. Gardening is definitely one of those. And, and just, you know, I, I sometimes either send myself or get sent out to work in the yard. So I will not bother other people. Um, and uh, so that's a, a great pleasure of just, I call it piddling in the backyard, like I, my granddad used to do. Um, I have four kids. So, uh, so a lot of my time is spent these days driving to and from soccer um, things, which I'm a, I'm a big soccer, otherwise known as football fan. And so um, if I'm not having to go somewhere, I'm watching either Premier League or other international soccer games on TV. And uh, so that's a lot of my time spent. Um, I, 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 I like to exercise. So I did play soccer a lot until I got to hurt my knee a little bit, but I still run and I, I get to bike to work and uh, and so things like that. So I try to be really, I like to be active. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, those were my core questions for you, Richard. But before I let you go, any last words of wisdom for aspiring educators or education leaders? I don't know about words of wisdom. Um, I, I think that many people go into ac academics because they want to be teachers. And but in truth, sometimes the game of academics is really more about research and your you know external funding and things like that. And I would just say that there's never been as good of a time to be an actual uh, person who loves to teach or an educator in academics because there are tracks in certain places. There's ways to to do this. And so I would just say that it can be done. Uh, sometimes it, it's hard to to find that little niche where you get some protected time. But I would say if, I mean, I, I often identify when I, people say, what do you do? And I, I try never to answer that question, but, but I usually say I'm a teaching doctor because I really identify probably more as a teacher than a doctor. And, uh, and, and, you know, if I got fired today, I'd go um, teach high school somewhere or call it, you know, and, and uh, I think that's what I identify with. So if, if, if the listener identifies with that and say, Hey, this is you go after it. And there, there are ways to really do that these days. And I'm really happy about that. Thank you so much for your time and those wise words to end up on. Yeah. Nice talking with you. <laughs>